Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's word and turn with me to the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 2 is where we're going to spend our time this morning. The last two years have been incredibly tumultuous, to say the least. We have seen a political race, a political cycle like never before. Um, It has been staggering to see some of the absolute moral failure of the people who have been involved. And it all ended, quote-unquote, on Tuesday. It ended with an election. And regardless of how the election went, we knew things weren't going to go well. Um, We knew we were picking between two very evil people. And they both need our prayers. Um, They both need our prayers and our pleading before God that he would work in their hearts. But an election has happened and government will continue. What are we as believers supposed to think? How are we supposed to live in this world? This world is pure insanity. Um, Moral rebellion is the nicest way to put what is happening all around us, not just in America, but in the world. There is such hostility to anything ethical, anything moral, and especially anything biblical. The moral restraints of the word of God are being thrown off left and right. So much so that in our country, at least, I believe Sodom and Gomorrah would blush at some of the things that are happening. What was once unthinkable is now completely uncensored and encouraged. What was once abhorrent is now applauded by the world around us. But we know this is nothing new, right? There's nothing new under the sun. This new morality that the world is trying to promote is nothing but the old immorality that is now repackaged and given in a completely different way. But it's not new. During the French Revolution, specifically during the storming of the Bastille, there's a story of a man who was trying to remove every, every fiber of law and every, everything that would remind you of Christianity and, and just bring in anarchy and destroy Christianity. And he scaled the cathedral of, the, uh, of Notre Dame and he tore down the cross that was on top of the building. He tore it off. He threw it down to the ground and it broke and shattered into a, a bunch of pieces. And the man proclaimed from the top of that building, we are going to pull down everything that reminds us of God. We're going to take it down, we're going to throw it on the ground, we're going to shatter it so that we get to reign and God is out of the picture. And there was a believer in the crowd and he spoke up and he said, Citizen, if you want to do that, then you might as well pull down the stars themselves. There's no way that you can get God out of the picture. There's no way you can throw away God. That's an impossible task and yet people are trying to do that around us in this world. So what are we supposed to think? How are we supposed to act? What, as, as believers and as the church, how do we view not only our political uh, environment, the government that we see around us, and specifically what has happened, how are we supposed to view the world? How are we supposed to view the church in the world? And where is God in all of this? I think Psalm 2 would be very helpful to just recalibrate our minds, center our hearts, rest our souls, With assurance and confidence, God is on his throne. He has never, nor will he ever, abdicate his throne. 
He is on the throne, ruling and reigning in sovereign goodness. Psalm chapter 2, let's read together. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing, saying, let us tear their fetters apart. Let's cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he might not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Father, I pray that in our time here this morning that that you would be exalted as king. God, may we not look at the nations around us and see them as evil, but us as not having to do anything. We're fine, we're, we're the church, we're pure, we're, we're righteous, and this psalm isn't about us, it's about them. God, may we, may we let your word go through the nations to our souls. Humble us. Show us where we are trying to throw off your law as if it were a fetter or a cord. May we all come to a place at the end of our time in this study where we would kiss the Son, where we would do homage to the Son, where we would respect Him, bowing the knee to Him, submitting to Him as King, and joyfully doing so. He is good. So God, give us as Christ Bible Church an unshakable confidence, in your sovereignty, and give the church universal an unshakable confidence in your sovereignty. Speak to us now through your word and open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Just a couple things by way of introduction to this psalm. Psalm chapter 2 was written by David according to Acts chapter 4, verse 25. Acts chapter 4, 25 says David wrote this through the power of the Holy Spirit. So God is the author. David's the author. It was a psalm that would have been written uh, or would have been um, addressed and given and and, uh, cited and quoted at the coronation of the kings of Israel. When a king was brought in and installed, this psalm would have been written. And it's easy to see why. The Lord has anointed somebody as king, and and that person is going to rule, and the nations are going to try and conspire against him. But this isn't just a a near prophecy or a near fulfillment of human earthly kings. This is a far fulfillment to the messianic king, and I think that you can see that very clearly because there is no earthly ruler that has a scepter uh, with a rod of iron that can destroy all the nations. That is Jesus and Jesus alone. So this is a, a near far Um, psalm, a near-far fulfillment, and ultimately it is an incredibly messianic psalm talking about Jesus, our Messiah. Uh, Jim Boyce said, if there is any psalm in the Bible that can be rightly regarded as as messianic, it's this one. 
This is about Jesus and about the way that the Father is going to give the world to Jesus as an inheritance. It's the second psalm in your Bible, but it's not the second to be written. Psalms, the, the book of Psalms wasn't written in chronological order. The first psalm that was written was Psalm 90 by Moses. The last psalm to be written was Psalm 126. So Psalm 2 isn't the second psalm to be written. It was intentionally placed here as kind of a, a front loader. Um, psalm 1 and Psalm 2, in, in fact, in early manuscripts, we have them together as one unit. Psalm 1 and some, Psalm 2 working together individually to show in Psalm 1, there's a way that leads to righteousness, there's a godly way that leads to blessing, and there's a a sinful way that leads to destruction. Which will you choose? Psalm 2 is the same question, only at a corporate level. Psalm 1 is individually. What what road, what path will you choose? Psalm 2 is corporately. Where will you choose to, to go? Will you choose to go down the road that's fighting against God as a nation, as a country, or will you choose to go down the road that submits to him? Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 work together. They form a unit. Psalm 1 begins with the beatitude. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. That's Psalm 1, verse 1. Psalm 2, verse 12 ends with the beatitude. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So it's one unit. That would be called in, in biblical terminology an inclusio. How blessed, how blessed, and everything in the middle forms one whole unit. Um, they, go, they work together very, very well, and they should be taken as such. In Psalm 1, the wicked are blown away like chaff. In Psalm 2, the wicked are broken in pieces like pottery. In Psalm 1, the way of the ungodly will perish. And in Psalm 2, the ungodly are to kiss the sun or else they, were, they will perish in the way. So it's a very, very similar psalm, just looking broadly at the nations as a whole. And the way to break this psalm down is very clear in the text. There are four stanzas, three verses each. Verse 1, 2, and 3 make one stanza. 4, 5, and 6, one stanza. 7, 8, 9, one stanza. And 10, 11, 12, one stanza. It's very good poetry. And so we'll use those divisions for our outline this morning. So the first three verses, um, we'll just call it human rebellion. The first three verses, human rebellion. We will see full-scale defiance against God and rebellion against him. The psalmist writes, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? He's asking a question. Why are they doing this? Why are they in an uproar? Why are they devising this? And this isn't an answer that is going, or a question that's going to be answered. This is a rhetorical question. This is a rhetorical question to say, there's no reason why anybody would want to do this. This is, this is futility at its finest. To try and overthrow God, that's impossible. Why are they even attempting that? Notice nations and peoples in the plural. All the nations are coming together. Every single nation is rising up. They, they are in an uproar, verse 1 says. Uh, uproar, that word is used elsewhere to refer to a, a tumultuous raging ocean or sea. Um, they're roaring against God. And they're devising, the peoples are devising a vain thing. That word devising is the exact same word. If you go back to chapter, or Psalm 1, verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Meditates, that word meditate in Psalm 1, verse 2, is the exact same Hebrew word in Psalm 2, verse 1. They're devising, they're meditating together, they're trying to figure out, they're murmuring and they're muttering together, how can we kill God? 
And this murmuring, this devising, is a vain thing. It's futile. It's doomed for failure from the beginning. Try and fight God. Go ahead. Try and punch him. (laughs) That's an impossible thing. So it's vain for them to do this. And yet they they will try. Verse 2. The kings of the earth are taking their stand. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The rulers and the kings work together. You know in our world today, nobody agrees on politics, on the way things should be done. Even our country is split right down the middle. Kings and and political rulers can't agree on economics. They can't agree on the way that the government should be run. And they can't hear either. They can all agree on one thing, though. They all counsel together. Do you hate God? Yep, I hate God. Great, we all hate God. Let's fight against him. They want to overthrow him. They don't work together on trade. You can't trade with us. We won't trade with you, but let's work together to fight God. And what are they specifically saying? They want to fight against God's anointed, the Lord's anointed. That word Lord there. They're they're working against God, Yahweh's anointed. They're working against him personally. They want him dead. Why do they want him dead? Why do they want to kill him? Again, that question is asked in in the first verse. But it's kind of a rhetorical question, but let's wrestle with it. Why would anybody say, I hate God and I want him dead? This gives us great insight into human hearts. Verse 3, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Why would anyone want to fight against God? The reason why is because they see his laws as chains. They see his laws as binding them and squashing their fun, destroying their joy. They see his rules as ultimately being just cosmic killjoys. They see the fetters and the cords. Those are the laws that God has made. They view the law of God as as a fetter. They don't want to be tied down by his rules. This is why anybody will pursue rebellion against God talked about this before in evangelism. You need to know this when you do evangelism. You need to know this when you share the gospel. There are so many people that would say, I don't want to follow God or submit to him because uh, there's discrepancies in the Bible. Or there's things I don't understand. Or there's things that I don't really agree with. And, and uh, there's, there's stories that I, they really couldn't have happened, could they? And they have questions. And some of them are good questions. Some of them are challenging questions. But nine times out of ten, if you were to ask the person asking those questions, look, those are great questions. If I were to answer all of those for you in an efficient, effective way, you're telling me you'd become a Christian, right? Nine times out of ten, they'd say, no. Because it's not about the questions. It's it's about the fact that I know there is a God who demands something of me, and I don't want to submit to that rule. Nobody wants to submit. We come out of the womb not wanting to submit. The first words that my son and daughter and my other son will probably say is no i don't want to do whatever you're asking me to do it's so much so that you you tell them hey can you come here and have an oreo cookie no i mean yes like they're they're instinctively no they just they they want to say no so much that you could hey do you want to go to disneyland no oh i mean yes they their heart is depraved we don't want rules we hate monarchies right No monarchy, have a democracy. I I need a voice. I don't like bosses. Um, 
We want our autonomy, especially America, right? We're Americans. We want autonomy. I'm my own boss. As one poet said, I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. I'm my own king. That's why people don't want to be Christians. And that's why Christians struggle in being a Christian. Because our flesh keeps on waging a war against us, saying, no, you have your autonomy. Fight for it. Well, Psalm 2 tells us there is a king. I'm sorry if you want to be king. You can't. There is a king. His name is God. He's always in charge. And if you do not submit yourself to him, it won't go well with you. This need, we need this to inform our understanding of human nature, inform our understanding of the people that we share the gospel with. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I want to show you this from 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. You know this section of scripture. Verse 1. Realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Well, that was an easy prophecy to make. (laughs) In the last days, difficult times will come. Yes, they will, Paul. We're seeing it. Why? Why will difficult times come? Because men will be lovers of self. They love themselves. They don't want to submit themselves to any other governing authority. They love themselves. They love money. They're boastful. They're arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Verse 5, holding to a form of godliness, although they've denied its power. They love pleasure rather than God, But they aren't all out-and-out atheists. There are many religious, quote-unquote, people that have a form of religion, but they deny its power because they make their religion in their own uh, way, in their own mind, in their own desires. Religion continues, but it's self-styled religion. It's a religion that people invent. I don't like that rule that God made, so I'll make a different rule. We see this left and right. So Paul tells us, Difficult days will come because people say, I don't want God in control. I'm in control. And I will not submit myself to God. For believers, it should be the exact opposite. Just write down 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, Paul says that we as believers no longer live for ourselves. We used to, but now we live for Christ because he purchased us with his blood. He bought us. We're not our own, so we don't live for ourselves anymore. These nations in Psalm 2 are rising up against God and they're showing us history, human history, kind of at the 30,000 feet level. This is all of human history. And the wickedness that we see around us stems from this exact heart, this foundation, a complete twisting, perversion, and throwing away of God's commands. Now, we talk about them a lot, right? Those nations. But my question is, what commands of God do you view as shackles? What commands has God given to us that you want to throw away? You're not in wholesale rebellion here, just a complete, I want to kill God. But there are places in our heart that still commit cosmic treason. We kick against God's laws all the time, and we view them as fetters. We view them as cords. We view them as chains that are shackling us and keeping us from having joy and fun. What command is that for you? 
Maybe it's don't worry. You know, that's a command. God gives us the command, don't be anxious, don't worry. Well, but I want to. God tells me I can't, but I want to, so I will. God doesn't say don't be anxious because he wants to ruin your fun. God says don't be anxious because I'm in control and I've got a a more joyous path for you to follow. Don't be bitter. No, but I want to. I want to be bitter. That person hurt me way too much. I want to be bitter. It's my right. I'm an American. I want to be bitter. God says, don't be bitter. If you're bitter, not only will what you're, you're wanting to happen not happen, you're wanting to hurt that other person. That's not going to happen. They're just going to not like you. Even more than that, you're going to destroy your own soul. I've heard it said that bitterness is like trying to drink poison, hoping the other person will die. It doesn't work. God isn't making rules because he wants to squish your fun. He's making rules because he wants to say, are you satisfied by me? And I've got a better way for you. Do you trust me? In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, the only creatures, by the way, that God made that said no. Every other creature that God made, every other particle in the universe that God created said, I will do exactly what you tell me to do. Oceans, God says here and not here. And they go, great, we'll submit to that here and not there. Birds flying. Can you just, have you ever seen those crazy birds and they're flying and all of a sudden, like you're driving, they're flying by you and then they just right in front of your car or, or they, you just see them. They look like they're going in one straight line and all of a sudden they go some other way. Why do they do that? I'm not a bird expert. But I always wonder, is God saying, eh, move? They're like, here I go. Well, I got to go. They just instant change. They're just constantly on the move. Why? Because God's telling them what to do. And then God creates humans and humans say, no, we don't want to do that. And we're still doing that to this day. We're still doing that. Where are the rules that God has made in your life for you, for your joy that you see as chains? You will see them as chains If you don't go to the heart of God to know God's making laws and rules for your joy. He's out to help you and to give you joy and satisfaction. He came to give life and life abundantly. He's not making rules to say, I hope your life's miserable. So will you trust him and willingly take those rules upon yourself? So we have human rebellion, a full-scale human rebellion on display in verses 1 through 3. So what's God's response? That's point number 2. God's response in verses 4 through 6. God's response is to sit and to scoff. God's response is clearly to sit and scoff. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Please notice, verse 2, the kings of the earth take their stand. They stand up, they rise up, they form an army, and they're trying to fight against God. And God is not standing. God is seated on his throne. He's not going to stand up and and go to fight. He doesn't have to do that. He's sitting down. He's sitting on his throne, the same throne that um, the Apostle John would see in Revelation and be overwhelmed by in heaven. That is what captured his eyesight in heaven. It's not who he met. It's not, is this person here? He sees God and he's captivated by the throne that God is seated seated on. He's seated seated down here. He's sitting on a throne and he's laughing. He's laughing. This isn't a a laugh because he saw some really funny section of a sitcom. This is a laugh of, of derision. This is a laugh of mocking. You really think that you 
puny, tiny little humans can fight against me. We're like little ants. He can just squish us. He can just blow and we'll go crazy. We'll fly. He can do whatever he wants and he'll destroy us. You really think you can fight against me? This is the kind of laughter. You guys remember David and Goliath? Everybody knows that story. David walks out to Goliath, and what does Goliath do? He laughs. Wait, you're going to try and fight me? That's not possible. I'm going to destroy you. Now, we know the end of that story. It didn't work out well for Goliath. We also know the end of this story. God has reason to be laughing. Nobody can beat him. Remember in John chapter 10 when Jesus said, Nobody can snatch us out of the hand of God. Why? Because he's more powerful than everyone. There's nobody who can beat him. So he sits in the heavens and he laughs and he scoffs. He scoffs. He's in control. He's on his throne. Let me give you some verses that, Lord willing, will encourage your heart. That God is sitting on his throne and ruling and reigning with power and grace in the universe. Psalm 33, verses 8 through 11. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, because he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, and the plans of his heart stand from generation to generation. Or Psalm 103, verse 19, the Lord has established his thrones in the, throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Uh, what about Proverbs 21, 1? You know this verse. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. God is in control. He reigns supreme. Just ask King Nebuchadnezzar. Ask King Cyrus. Is God in control or are you sovereign? Nebuchadnezzar would say, I was sovereign until I realized that I, I thought I was sovereign over everything. And, and God told me, no, you're not. And if you praise yourself, if you take pride in your own achievements and don't give glory to God who is the sovereign, I will humble you. Ask Cyrus. <laughs> Cyrus takes people captive from Israel. And then a couple years later, he says, eh, go back. Why? I'm sure Cyrus's citizens would have said, mm, we just did a lot of work to capture them, to bring them back. Why are we letting them go? What's going on? You wouldn't have any idea. God said this is the decree that's going to happen. God made it happen. Turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. If your view of God is small, then you absolutely have reason to fear in these unstable days. But if your view of God is like Isaiah's view in Isaiah chapter 40, then you have no reason to be afraid. You have every reason to be confident and rest assuredly in the sovereignty of God. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and they are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. A speck of dust. That's a subcategory of dust. We are a subcategory of dust. We are nothing before him. Verse 18, who will you liken the Lord to? To whom? Who, who can you do that? What likeness will you compare with him? Not going to be an idol. Chapter down to verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? 
Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? All of those are rhetorical questions to say, yes, you obviously know there is a God. Verse 22, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Verse, drop down to verse 25. To whom then will you liken me? That I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created the stars. The one who leads forth their host by number and calls them all by name. Because of his greatness, of his power and might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. God is God. Drop down to verse 28. Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired, and his understanding is inscrutable. Our God reigns. That's why he laughs. That's why he sits in heaven and he laughs. We are a subcategory of dust and we're trying to to beat him up. So he laughs and he scoffs. Verse 5 In Psalm chapter 2, verse 5, he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury. He's angry. That word anger comes from a a Hebrew word that means a, a flaring of the nostrils. His nostrils are flaring. Why? Because he's sitting in heaven and he's he's angry at their offensive sin against him. And he's he's doing this. He's going and his nostrils are flaring as he's preparing to strike. There's fury. He's terrifying them in his fury. That word fury comes from a root word that means to set ablaze. His, his fury is going to be kindled and like fire before them in judgment. We tend to not like this picture of our God. There's a lot of churches that just say God's not angry. Um, our sin's not that bad. He grades on a curve. We're okay. God's not angry. Just love, love, peace and love. The Bible says that God is angry, and rightfully so, and we need to love this about our God. Turn to Psalm 5, just a couple psalms over here. Psalm chapter 5, verse 5 and 6. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You guys ever heard the saying, God hates the sin, loves the sinner? I understand what they're saying, and there's partial truth to it. But this also says he hates sinners. He doesn't just hate the iniquity. You hate all who do iniquity. God doesn't cast sin into hell. God casts sinners into hell. And if that wasn't enough, verse 6, you destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. God is a God who loves holiness. Therefore, he must hate sin True love has inside of it hatred for that which offends what you love. You have to have hatred for that which offends what you love. Psalm chapter 7, verse 11 and 12. God is a righteous judge and a a God who has indignation every day. And if a man does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. His bow is bent and he has made it ready. And Spurgeon says, God never misses his mark when he bends his bow to fire, judgment. Our God sits in the heavens and laughs. He scoffs. Why? Because we in our own futility say, we're better than you. 
We're going to throw off your fetters. We're going to throw off your law. And God says, no. Not only will that not go well for you in the here and now. I made these laws and rules for you for your joy. But also it will not go well for you in the afterlife. So what is God going to do about it? Verse 6 in Psalm chapter 2. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. As for me. So they're going to do that. But as for me, I'm going to do something else. I'm going to do this. I'm king. I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to install my king upon Zion, upon my holy mountain. That's God's response to human rebellion. Now, point number three, verses seven through nine, we're going to see God's sovereign rule. What's he going to do? Verse seven, the father was speaking. Now the son is going to speak. And he says this, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord, the decree that the father passed down. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. A lot of people trip up on that word begotten. Let me just Uh, quickly help you with it. Uh, If you just write in the margin there, Acts chapter 13, verse 33. Acts chapter 13, verse 33. You can also write down Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. They both quote this section of scripture, verse 7 of Psalm chapter 2. Today I have begotten you. And they both refer to the resurrection. This is dealing with the resurrection. The earth is being pictured as, as a womb of a woman Fertile, productive, producing new life. Jesus springs forth from the womb of the earth, so to speak, and he's begotten. Philippians chapter 2, once Jesus submits himself to death, even death on a cross, he is raised from the dead, and and Philippians 2 says that God highly exalts him. That's this moment. Verse 8, ask of me, I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth, as your possession. The nations that are warring against God. God said, because you'd submitted to death on the cross, you died, you were buried, you rose from the dead, I'm going to give you an inheritance. I'm going to highly exalt you and give you an inheritance and it includes all of those nations. What are you going to do with those nations? What would you do? Martin Luther, this is one of Martin Luther's favorite psalms, and he, in reading this psalm, said, what would you do if you entrusted the entire government to your son and everyone plotted against him and killed him, what would you do? Martin Luther said, in a, in a way that Martin Luther only could say, I would knock the world to pieces. I would knock the world to pieces. That's exactly what God says here. I gave the nations my son and the nations killed my son, so I'm giving the nations to my son so he can destroy those who would fight against him. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30, vengeance is God's and he will repay. How does he repay? Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. That rod of iron is a scepter. He is king and he will destroy the nations. He will shatter them like a a piece of pottery. That quote is used in Revelation 19, verse 15, that Jesus comes back, his second coming, to destroy those who would war against him. And he will shatter them like a piece of pottery. So, human rebellion is seen. God responds. And then we see God's sovereign rule clearly on display. He will do what he desires to do with the nations. What's our response? How are we supposed to respond in all these things? This is point number four. Human responsibility. It's our response. It's our time to respond. 
Verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, now, this is the moment. It must be today. Now, not tomorrow, not next week, not in the new year. It must be at this moment. Now, show discernment. The same kings who are fighting against God, stop doing that and show discernment. Realize that you are warring against the God of the universe. Take warning, O judges of the earth. You have been judging God. Now God is going to judge you. Take warning. Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Worship God because you are supposed to be judged, but he has made a way for that judgment to fall in his son. Worship. Rejoice. You can be forgiven. The one that you are fighting against that can destroy you just by thinking it can grant you forgiveness because of what he did to his son. Verse 12, do homage to the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. Some of your translations might say kiss the son. Um, This is a beautiful picture of a defeated king that would come before the one that defeated him. And he would bow down before that new sovereign king that he was fighting against, but he knows he's defeated. He has surrendered, and he comes before that king, and he he lays down, and he would kiss the feet of the king, surrendering to the victorious one. We even see this in Mark chapter 14 with the woman with the alabaster vial of perfume. She kisses the feet of Jesus, and she wipes the perfume all over him. So God says to the kings, submit now. Do this now. Surrender now before you will surrender on that final day. Surrender now. God's wrath is coming. Turn now. In the midst of the swirling, gathering storm of judgment, as they are in an uproar, in a tumultuous, swirling storm of fury against God, God's storm of fury against them is greater But there's an invitation to refuge. There's an invitation to find a blessing. This is the beatitude at the end of the psalm, verse 12. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. That word blessed is the same word that's used in Psalm 1, verse 1. How blessed. They're both found in the plural. Oh, the blessednesses. You can be blessed. And anyone, how blessed are all who take refuge. Anyone, you should hear whosoever in there from John, right? Whosoever believes, whosoever would turn. But there is a qualifier. To be blessed, you must take refuge in Jesus. You must take refuge in Jesus. You realize that God is going to judge those around you that don't know Jesus? God's going to judge them. God's going to judge the wicked rulers that would rule in in our government, the wicked rulers that would rule in the world. Judgment is coming, even though they don't think so. And this, again, is nothing new. Flavius Claudius Julianus, Caesar of Rome, in A.D. 360, reinstated pagan worship, which had been abolished under the rule of Constantine. He sought to remove Christianity from the face of the earth, so he began widespread persecution of the Christians. It might be a persecution that we soon could face. We don't know, but God does. In taunting a certain Christian named Agaton, 
the emperor asked, this is while Agaton is being persecuted, the emperor asked, how is your carpenter of Nazareth doing these days? Is he finding work as a lowly carpenter? Without hesitation, Agaton replied, he is perhaps taking time away from building mansions for the faithful to build a coffin for you and for your empire. God will judge. That's why I'm happy I'm a part of the church. God has promised that the church will prevail and not even hell itself will overcome it. God did not give that promise to America. America is a beautiful experiment that will probably be destroyed. We have no promise that this country will reign forever. We have a promise that the church will exist forever and will not be defeated. That is our promise that we cling to. So, you can try and resist the sun, but he will judge. Those are the rules. If you want to enter into eternity not aligned with Jesus, you bear the wrath that you have incurred because of your sins. And there are so many people who don't like that and they try to change that, but you can't change it just because you don't like it. Those are the rules. So what are we supposed to do instead? Verse 11, worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. I love this verse because it brings everything together. Fear, happiness, joy, reverence, sobriety. Fear and wisdom go hand in hand. You know that from the Proverbs. But fear and rejoicing go hand in hand as well. I would encourage you to read, there's a book by um, John Bunyan called The Treatise on the Fear of God. And this is so helpful. If you hear fearing God as somehow antithetical to loving and being happy in God, I would encourage you to read that. A Treatise on the Fear of God by John Bunyan. Um, Or if you want something a little bit lighter, uh, Jerry Bridges wrote The Joy of Fearing God. That's another very helpful book on how joy and fear in God are not at odds. They're not at odds. Rejoice with trembling because you're standing before the God of the universe as a subcategory of dust. Rejoice with trembling. Is Christ your king? I want to end in Psalm 50. Go to Psalm 50. Again, if Christ is your king, then you have nothing to fear even in the crazy days that we have ahead of us. If Christ isn't your king, you have great reason to fear, not because of the world around you, but because of the judgment that you will incur on Judgment Day. Psalm chapter 50, verse 16. Psalm 2 fits right here. To the wicked, God says, What right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? You hate discipline. You cast my words behind you. That sounds like Psalm 2. You cast away my laws as if they were fetters and shackles. When you see a thief, you're pleased with him. Similar to Romans 1. You call good evil, evil good. You associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose in evil. Your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have kept silence. This is why people don't fear God more than they do right now. Because God's silent. He doesn't want any to perish, so he's waiting. And he's, he's wanting us as ambassadors to go into the world to preach this gospel. Even in the difficult days ahead, to preach, there is a judge, you must repent, he's waiting. I've kept silence. You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you 
and state the case in order before your eyes. God is judging, will judge, and has already judged. I think the world around us thinks that that's a joke. Just remember Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber. Um, on death row, he was asked by somebody who apparently it was a non-believer, but he assumed that this wicked criminal was going to go to hell. And he said, what, what are you going to do when you go to hell? Aren't you afraid of hell? This reporter asked Timothy McVeigh, and, and he responded by saying this, if there is a hell, I will improvise, I will adapt, and I will overcome. If there is a hell, no biggie. God's judgment isn't that bad. I'll be fine. You and I know that there is a hell. And that's why the end of Psalm 50 and the end of Psalm 2 are so helpful. Verse 22, Consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you in pieces and there will be none to deliver. What should we consider? He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. Kiss the Son. Do homage to the Son. Surrender yourself to the Son, lest his anger be kindled against you. And to him who orders his way aright, I shall show the salvation of God. That's the only way we can be blessed. That's the only way we can have joy, is if we walk in the path of salvation that God has given to us through Jesus. So, in conclusion, I... I just have a couple questions for us as a church. Where do we resist God's rule over our lives? Where? It's not an if. It's not do you. It's a I know you do because I do as well. Where are you prone to seeing God's laws as shackles instead of blessings? God's laws are blessings. Question number two, how should God's sovereignty be a comfort to us? He's sovereign. How does it comfort us? Does it comfort us? In these days ahead, it absolutely must be our rock. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but God does. So I trust his sovereignty. Do you, do you embrace the sun? Do you kiss the sun? Do you do homage to the sun? Have you surrendered him? Do you have affections for him? Do you love him? 1 Corinthians 16, 22, anyone who does not have love for the sun is to be accursed. Do you love him? What would the evidence be that you love him? Jesus said it himself. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You're going to live for me. And finally, question number four. Who is it in your life that you can witness to regarding this judgment and the salvation and the blessednesses of following Jesus? We have so many friends around us. This is why we planted a church. We, We didn't plant a church to just do church. We planted a church because we have so many people in this city, in this community alone, that don't even know that judgment is coming. They don't even know. And we're just like Noah saying, there's an ark, there's a way of salvation, there's a flood coming, you need to know the flood's coming, but please get into the ark. Please come now. Turn from your sins. Turn to Jesus as Lord and Savior and find refuge in him against the flood of his judgment. He made a way for that by pouring out his judgment onto Jesus. The wrath that is kindled in Psalm 2 was poured out on Jesus. That's why Jesus cried out, why have you forsaken me? What did I do? I'm not in an uproar against you. I'm not plotting and and devising a vain thing. But God the Father treated Jesus as if he had. 
so that he could treat those of us who spurn God's laws but would repent. He can treat us as if we live Jesus' holy life. So in the days ahead, who knows what's going to happen, but God does. And in the big picture, humans will, will rebel. God will respond to them. God will rule over them. And he offers us a gracious invitation to come and to be on his side. And brothers and sisters, I want to be on God's side in the last days. Listen as I close, just some verses for us to meditate on. Listen to who's in control and listen to the hope that we have in our sovereign king. Revelation 1.5, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Daniel chapter 2 verse 21, it is God who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and he establishes kings. Romans 13.1, there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. Daniel 4.17, the most high is ruler over the entire realm of mankind and bestows rule on whom he wishes and sets over the lowliest of men. Isaiah 40 verse 23, it is God who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. The Lord is the one who's in control of all these things. So I say with our brother John Newton that there is one political maxim which comforts me. The Lord reigns. God reigns. I'm happy to be on his side. God, I pray that we would be encouraged by your word, that you are the the reigning authority. You are the sovereign in the universe. You reign in complete control. There is nothing that happens apart from your sovereign hand doing it. And so we trust We trust the results of of the election that just happened, knowing that you, just as Romans 13, 1 said, you've appointed exactly who you want for your good purposes, and we will never place our trust in human authority. We place our trust in God and God alone. You hold the oceans in your hands. You number every star and every grain of sand. And so we come before you and we say, there is no one like you. May we kiss the sun even now surrendering ourselves even now to the beautiful authority of our Savior. We pray in his name.